I'm going to let you into, into the mind of a pastor here for a moment. Some of you uh, aren't pastors for a living, but you know what? You are pastors at heart. Pastor is something that God calls you to. It's, uh, it's something we feel. It's something you know. Pastor Rich, he's a pastor. Being a preacher doesn't make you a pastor. Being a pastor is, uh, is a very different thing. It's how you see and care and love people. Adam down here in the front row, he's a pastor. He cares and loves people. A lot of you are pastors at heart. And I'm going to tell you something that just breaks the heart of a pastor. And we're going to, we're going to talk about John 18 today. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to John 18. But I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you something that just drives me crazy. The pastor in me just bristles against this. And it's a statement I hear far too often. I'm going to guess that you've all heard it from someone. Maybe you've even said it. The statement's this. God doesn't care about me. Right? God doesn't care about me. God's got too much going on out there. God doesn't care. You know, people tell me to pray. God doesn't care about my problems. God doesn't care what's going on in my life. That just breaks the heart of a pastor. Whether your title is a pastor, or whether your call in life is a pastor, or whether you just are a Christian that loves people, that statement breaks your heart. Because God does care. And today we're going to find out just how much God cares. God cares about the smallest details. And what I realized as I was putting this message together today, there are so many details in the Bible that God has placed there for us to find that most of us spend our entire life never uncovering. We don't, we don't spend the time trying to, to get to the bottom of those details. And they're everywhere. And I found one today and it's just... It, I found one this week putting this message together, and it just it blew my mind. Think about this for a moment. When we say God, when we talk about God who is up there, the Father, the Creator, the One who, who we pray to, and, and we're told He listens to everything that, that concerns us, and that, that God answers, that God acts, that God created everything that's in the universe. For all we know, there, there's more out there than we've ever or ever going to understand or uncover. He created the whole universe. He created galaxies and planets and stars, and He put it all into motion. It all works perfectly together. And then you break it down to earth, and He even cared so much, He made the tiniest little infinitesimally small building blocks of everything called atoms. You talk about a God that is in the details. The old saying is, the devil is in the details. I am going to smash that one to pieces and say, our God is a God of details. But more than that, you're not just a detail to God. You're the crown of God's creation. You are what it's all there for and about. God did it all for you, for us. We're talking about Jesus and we're in the last moments of Jesus' life. Every detail matters. Spending time trying to understand every word, every interaction, every conversation, every person who makes it to the pages of Scripture right now is important. But I want you to realize before we get into it, the most important detail of all to God is you. The reason that this is all here for us to read and to know the history of is because God sent His Son Jesus to earth to live as one of us, to teach, to train a group of guys and ended up growing a larger group of people. And then He gave His life on the cross as penalty for our sin, as the sacrifice, because our sin needs to be paid for. He paid the penalty. And then God raised Him from the grave to a new life so that we could live free. You are the most significant detail. Don't lose sight of that. We're going to realize today just how much 
God is in the details, even the smallest things. So as we do this, please don't ever think that God doesn't care about you. There are details out there that you're never going to understand that God cares about. None of them more important than you. So John 18, the first verse. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. Hold on right there. This is where it all got started for me. Doesn't that strike you as a lot of detail? Why in the world would they, we talk about this brook Kidron? It, it, it kind of caught my attention. So I do what I tell you I do a lot of times. I ask why. What's the point? Why in the world would, would we concern ourselves with all of the names, with all of these details? Why, why do they matter? What's going on is Jesus is about to be betrayed. That's what should matter. Jesus is about to die on the cross. That's what should matter. It seemed unnecessary that, that the Bible would recall that Jesus passed this brook called Kidron. At this time of year, for the most part, it was dried up. There wasn't even any water flowing through it. So I started to do some digging, and I'm glad that I did. It wasn't the only little valley in the city of Jerusalem that Jesus would have crossed, because where He and His disciples had been, if you want to put up the map here, they'd been in the upper room. The upper room is in the yellow there, kind of in the middle on the left. And what they did here through the course of the last time that we were talking in John, they worked their way through off to the right. And on the right you can see the Kidron Valley. They walked through there. And as you see them going up to the Garden of Gethsemane, just to the left is the temple. That's the route that they took. They passed a lot of famous things. But the Bible says the Valley of Kidron and the Brook brook Kidron. So why? Well, what we know is that the temple in Jerusalem was the highest point of the city. That was the highest piece of land, and then the temple went way up above that. So from that perspective, everything else was kind of downhill, if you will. But somehow or another, John wanted us to know the route that Jesus took. This is Holy Week that we're in, right? That's what we call it now. Jesus has just shared the Last Supper, as we recall it, in the upper room with His disciples. There it is, center left of the city. They've got a long way to walk turns out that that meal was their last Passover meal together. They'd done it every year together for three years. It was the most important meal of the year for them as Jewish people. They'd done it every year. But this year was different. This one was their last, which is why we call it the Last Supper. See, at the same time in the city of Jerusalem, something else is going on. In the temple, on the other side of that valley... The temple priests were doing what they did every year for Passover. They were taking in the lambs that the people brought in as atonement for their sin. And it ended up being hundreds of priests that would have to do this because this is the week that had happened during Passover, this time of year for the Jewish people. That's why everybody came to town. Hundreds of priests would accept these animals and they would, they would sacrifice them on the altar in the temple. Ends up, I read, that, that in, a, in a normal year, 250,000 lambs gave their life as atonement for the sins of the people. 250,000 lambs. That's a lot. So I kept on reading and I thought, okay, well, what happens? What, what, I, I know that that blood was not something that they were going to do anything with. And then I know that the priests also had this whole ceremonial thing where they washed their hands and they cleansed themselves between every one of them. You know, it turns out that all of the blood and all of the water from that ceremonial cleaning, 
all went into drains that went under the temple and they, they carried it all out and it just dumped on the outside of the temple and, and went down this cliff. Guess, guess where it went? went to the brook Kidron. All of that blood and all of that water went down into the Kidron brook. And actually it's called the Kidron because it means dark. It's dark water. Got its name from these sacrifices that would happen or black brook. See, the valley that Jesus walked across that the Bible wanted to make sure that we understand on the way to His betrayal literally held the blood of the 250,000 lambs that were sacrificed for human sin. Are you seeing the details? Wow, is right. Don't think for a moment that God's Son, the perfect Lamb of God, who was about to be sacrificed for our sins, didn't know exactly what He was doing. That's a detail that the Bible didn't want us to miss. That was a detail that God left there for us to uncover. Imagine how important the details of your life are to God. So Jesus and His disciples walk across this valley. They go through this river. And no doubt this time of year, it was full of the blood and the water from these lambs that had been slaughtered in the temple. It wouldn't have been anything for His disciples to thought about it. The fact is they knew it was coming because Jesus had told them, but they were denying it. They were just skipping the details. They were focused on Him. But could you imagine making that walk with Jesus? Could you imagine what would have been going through His mind? 250,000 lambs couldn't do what He alone was about to. He alone, the perfect Lamb of God, walking through the spilled blood of all of those other lambs that they thought were perfect. So where did it start? They're on the way to the garden. They make that clear. Got thinking about that. There's another famous garden in the Bible. Garden of Eden, right? I just wonder if it ever occurred to Jesus, and I don't know that He ever thought like this. I would have. I would have thought, you know, if only Adam and Eve had listened to my father... If only Adam and Eve had listened to God, not the serpent, we wouldn't be here right now. If they had only listened to what God told them, you know, the one thing God said, don't eat from that one tree. You can have everything else that you can find. It's all yours. It's just that one tree. Leave it alone. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. Where did Adam and Eve go? Right to that tree. 2,000 years later, from this day of Jesus walking across the valley, things really haven't changed. Because the Garden of Eden was what it was, and Adam and Eve did what they did. So now Jesus is in a completely different garden, about to be betrayed and crucified for sins that He was completely innocent of. Tonight, this in the passage, the sin from Eden culminates in the sin of Judas, where He not only sins by betraying Jesus. He sins against Jesus by turning Him over to be killed. Judas was aware of the details as well. The sins of the Garden of Eden continue with you and I today. Had all of this passage yet to be happened, if it was happening right now, you know what? Our lives would still require Jesus to go to the cross. We've had all this time to understand and to to figure it out and to get it straight. And yet Jesus would still have been called by God to have done the very same thing. 18.2, Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. Why did Jesus, or Judas know it? Because Judas was a disciple. He'd been there before. 
Judas was an insider who really lived as an outsider, but he had an insider's seat at the table. The difference between Judas and the other twelve was Judas never knew Jesus as his Lord. Judas never understood Jesus as his Messiah, as his Savior. Jesus was never anything more to Judas than a teacher. And now Jesus represented a way for him to earn himself a little bit of money, 30 pieces of silver. You've heard me talk about this before. That was what you had to pay someone if your animal killed someone else's slave. A dead slave was worth 30 pieces of silver. That was what Judas got for betraying Jesus. At this point, Jesus represented nothing more to him but the way to get a little bit ahead. Not unlike people we see in the church today, whether it's a disciple, a pastor, or someone who thinks that they're a good Christian, but really, in their mind, the church is just a place where they can get a little bit ahead, a place to grab a little power or some authority, a little recognition. It's the way Jesus was treated by Judas. He didn't see him and accept him for who he was. That might be the way of the world and the way of politics in corporate America, but that is not the way that God had planned for His church or His people. Verse 3, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Curiously, this verse tells us that Judas wasn't someone who just got swept up in it. Judas was a part of it. Judas helped to gather everybody, the religious leaders, the soldiers. More than likely, there was well over a hundred. I read in one place it was probably between 200 and 600 Roman soldiers because they were going expecting conflict. And the Roman army never got outnumbered in conflict if they could help it. And so even they were going after one man, They weren't really sure what kind of a fight they needed to get ready for, and so they loved to show their power and strength. And Judas gathered all of these people. When they showed up, they showed up intimidating and overwhelming. See, Judas, he wasn't tricked or trapped or caught up in the events of the night. Judas actually helped to orchestrate everything that happened that night. So they're in the garden, and Jesus, it says in verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? Isn't it interesting? Rather than them having to come and find him, Jesus steps out to them and says, Who do you seek? He knows full well who they're looking for, but he didn't shy away. He wasn't afraid. He didn't try to hide in the trees. Jesus stepped out and said, Who do you seek? Jesus walked into the garden on this night with his eyes wide open. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the way the events of the evening were going to play out. And he knew that when the sun set on this day, it would be his last day on earth as a human that he would see that sunset alive. The details weren't escaping Jesus. He was well aware that this began the culmination of his time on earth. This night, beginning with the betrayal of one of those closest to him, begins this series of events that roll out so quickly that amount to his arrest, these fake trials, a day of mockery, being left alone by the closest to him, the beating that he received, the flogging, and ultimately his death on the cross. Jesus knew it was all going to happen, but he didn't run away. He didn't walk away. He stood there with dignity because he knew this was God's plan for him. And he stepped forward and said, who are you looking for? Jesus wasn't afraid of what was to follow. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Their, their intention in using that name would have been to minimize him. The, the Jewish priests and the religious leaders, they didn't want to give Jesus credit for anything. There's a place in the Bible where someone asked of Jesus, anything, could anything good come from Nazareth? 
The idea being that, that nothing worth anything could come from that place, and so they use that identifier, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am He. So I went back and I looked at that because we've heard that one before, right? Literally, literally in the original language, what Jesus' response was, I am. Who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' response was, I am. What that did to those Jewish priests and religious leaders who were there was a detail that wasn't lost on them. That was Jesus directly connecting Himself to all of those statements in the Old Testament where God said, I am. Jesus was claiming to be God. He wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth the way they were trying to write Him off as. No, He was so much more than that. Judas, who betrayed Him, was standing with them, one of the twelve who had spent the last three years with Jesus. Learned from Him. He'd been an eyewitness to the miracles. He'd seen for himself that there was no explanation to who Jesus was. He wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth. The only explanation could possibly have been that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Verse 6, when Jesus said, I am He, something very interesting happened. When Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. Why did they fall to the ground? Could you imagine these, these religious leaders, so arrogant and pompous, so filled with pride and self-righteousness, all dressed up in their finest in this detachment of Roman soldiers, whether it was a hundred or six hundred, all dressed up in their battle gear. Can you just imagine all those people there to confront and intimidate and arrest Him? And when Jesus says those three simple words, I am or I am He, they back up and they fell to the ground. He didn't make them do it. They just did. Two reasons, I think, happened there. When He said, I am, a second time, somehow the power of God was so strong on Him, those religious leaders knew they couldn't confront Him. They knew they couldn't stand in front of Him. And I think those, those military men that only understood power and might and, and weapons and war, when this man who was so internally strong stood before them with such humility and such integrity not afraid at all to identify who He was. Even they fell to the power of God that was before them. When He says, I am, He's tying Himself to the great I am of the Old Testament, to the great I am of eternity, the great I am of creation, the great I am who is all in all. Jesus, who is about to become the sacrifice for our sins, is soon to be the I am your Savior. So those religious traitors, and that's what they were. And Roman soldiers, they, they came armed for conflict because they were there for one person, one, one purpose. The only purpose that they were there for was to take this man into custody to begin the process of taking his life from him. It was premeditated murder. That's all it was. They knew that men don't come easily when that stuff happens. And so they were there to fight. So we asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Let's take a little bit of a turn here and, and let's make this a little more personal. Who do you seek? What, what, what are you looking for? What is it that you're clinging to? Where is your hope? 
What is it that you are grabbing onto in this life, believing that it can do something more for you than what you can do for yourself? We have to put ourselves into these verses and see where it is that we fit. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am He, so if you seek Me, let these men go. Jesus is always looking out for us. He knew that those soldiers carried with them the power and the authority to completely slice to pieces every one of His men in a moment. No one would have asked a question. And He said, I'm the one that you're looking for. Let these guys go. They didn't do anything wrong. They haven't done anything to hurt you. Jesus is always looking out for us. Why? Because you are the detail that matters to Him. This is to fulfill the word that He had spoken of those whom you gave Me. I have not lost one. And Simon Peter, good old Peter, having a sword, you've got to ask yourself the question, where did he get a sword? Where did this disciple of Jesus suddenly show up with a sword? Nowhere in the Bible does it say Peter carried a sword. So this night, you know that he's probably thinking the Romans are going to come after us. These things are getting heated up. I'm going to protect Jesus, right? So Peter, I can't believe the guy knows how to handle a sword much less in front of 600 Romans. Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. If you think about it, he went to the guy who represented to the high priest what he represented to Jesus. He went to his match. Went to his equal. He didn't go after the high priest. He didn't go after one of the soldiers. He was smart enough just barely not to do that. The Bible says the servant's name was Malchus. Peter, the impetuous Slow to think, quick to act to one of the apostles. See, Peter was thinking he was helping Jesus. He thought he'd be the protector. Peter figured, I'll show up with a sword. If anything goes south, I'll be there. I'll step out in front of Jesus. I'll take care of it. Jesus didn't ask for protection. Jesus didn't ask for any help. He didn't ask for a defense. Something I learned about a long time ago about God. God does not need me and God does not need you to defend Him. What God asks of us is to tell the truth of Him as we've experienced Him. Peter thought he needed to defend Jesus when in fact God was already completely in control of the entire situation. And you can know that that's true of your life too because there's nothing in this universe, not one detail, most certainly not you, that God isn't aware of, concerned about, and keeping track of with love. The same is true for us today though. God never once asked us in the entirety of the Bible to come to His defense. What He does do is ask us to tell the truth of Him. To tell others what He means to us and love others in the same way that He's loved us. That's what God asks us to do. And I think for Peter, it was easier to draw a sword than to actually do those things. One of the things that has just somehow the media let this out recently, and I'm not sure how they did that. I guess she was such a celebrity. Did you hear Kathy Lee Gifford? She was talking about her time with Reverend Billy Graham and how much she admired him and how instrumental she was in her late husband's life and her own and her family's life. And She said something so simple and so profound. She said, if you had the cure for cancer, would you keep it quiet? I have the cure for the malignancy of the human soul and he has a name and it's Jesus. That's coming against some other very famous women who had pretty well attacked Jesus and other believers the week before. She didn't defend God. What she did is she pointed the way to truth. She pointed the way to heaven. And that's all that God asks us to do. Go through the Bible and you find out in the New Testament how many times Jesus confronts someone and tells them they're going to hell. What Jesus always does is tells people the way to heaven. We don't have to tell people 
what's going to happen, that, that they're going to hell, the thing that God asks us to do is to tell them how it is that we understand the path to heaven. So verse 11, Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter, are you really going to be the one that is going to stop me from doing God's will for my life? Are you really going to be the one that's going to keep me from doing the very thing that I'm here to do? See, Jesus knew His purpose. He knew why He was here, and He knew who He was here for. Jesus was free to do absolutely anything that He wanted. Jesus could have walked away. Jesus could have denied who He was. He could have not shown up in the first place. And yet Jesus chose to do His Father's will and give His life as a willing sacrifice for you and I and the sins that we so easily take for granted. Jesus truly then is the great I Am. So if Jesus is I Am, what is He to you? Here's what He said. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I'm the light of the world, I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the true vine, I'm the bread of life. Jesus is the answer to our questions. Jesus is the solution to our problems. He is the one who will heal our broken hearts. He is the one who will give us hope when everything around us is hopeless. He is the one who truly knows us for who we are. We don't have to pretend to be anything that we're not because He already knows the truth. He is the one who is and who knows and who has and who will. He's the only Son of God. He is the Savior of all who believe and trust in Him. He is one who paid the price for you that you cannot pay for yourself. He is the one and only true and eternal lover of your soul. He is the one who knows you, who loves you, who sees you, who forgives you. He's all those things and He is so very much more. But when they asked him who he was, all he said was, I am. So the real question, the one that matters most to you right now, right here today, is not who are all the things that Jesus is. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your great I am? Is he your true hope? Is he the eternal Savior of your soul? Or is he just a guy that the Bible wrote a lot about? Who is Jesus to you? Let's pray. God, thank You that we are not details in the universe. Thank You that we don't believe in a universe that people tell us is out for our best interest, but that is impersonal. The universe is cold. It's dark. It's filled with Your creation. Were it not for You, God, there would be no hope out there. Thank You, God, for who You are. Thank You that You sent Your Son, Jesus, to live as one of us and as we're getting close in these passages, to die for us. Thank You that Jesus is the great I Am. And for all the things that He is, it isn't, doesn't mean very much if we don't believe in Him. So God, we ask that Your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. Maybe we've known Jesus our whole lives, but we've never fully given ourselves to Him. Because one day, one day, God, You're going to ask Him for each one of us if He knows us and who we are. And God, the answer that we want Him to give is, 
I am her Savior. I am His Savior. But that only happens when we give ourselves to Him now. And so, God, through Your Holy Spirit, we pray that You would work in us to do that very thing. In Jesus' name, Amen. Here's two things I know for sure this morning I want to make sure you go home and are clear about. Number one, the devil wants you to believe that God doesn't care about you. The devil wants you to believe that God is too busy and you are too insignificant and you've done too much wrong in your life for God to care one bit about what happens to you. I know that's not true. The other thing that I know is that God cares deeply about every part of you in your life. I know that because Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, chose a path on this night we looked at today, walking through the blood of 250,000 slaughtered lambs whose blood was shed for human sin, knowing that within 24 hours it would be His blood that would be shed. And when He did that, He thought about you. He didn't do it because He had to. He didn't do it because God didn't give Him a choice. He did it because He loves you. And as Jesus walked that route and as He walked through that blood knowing that His blood was going to be next, He thought about you and He loves you that much. Don't let the devil convince you that you don't matter. You mean everything to Jesus. So much so that He gave His life for you. Thank you for coming this week. Have an awesome, wonderful week. Hope to see you here at next Sunday, 1030. If you've got a friend who doesn't know Jesus or is looking for a church home, bring him along. We've got one more song. Thank you, worship team.